Welcome to the MIT Sloan Sports Analytics Conference podcast presented by ESPN and 42 Analytics. This is Jessica Gelman, who along with Daryl Morey co-founded and chair the conference with a fantastic group of MIT Sloan students each year. Thanks for listening and enjoy. Good morning and welcome to the 2021 Sloan Sports Analytics Conference. My name is Riley Foreman and I'm a first year MBA student at MIT Sloan. It is my privilege to introduce our panel, a conversation with Andrew Yang and Nate Silver. Our panelists today are Andrew Yang, New York City mayoral candidate, and Nate Silver, Editor-in-Chief, 538. This panel will run for 45 minutes, and with that, I'll turn it over to Andrew and Nate. Thank you for that, Riley. Uh, hello, Andrew. How are you? I'm doing well, Nate. How are you? I love the baseball cap. Uh, <laughs> that, I mean, that's the uh, Detroit Tigers, right? Detroit Tigers, yeah. I kind of figured uh, if you're not going to wear a tie, then I can go one level of formality down still. But No, I, um, you make me want to have a Mets cap on. Uh, <laughs> and hello, MIT. Appreciate you all. Way to make the world more data-driven and uh, math-friendly. <laughs> um, but I wanna, we're going to ask a combination of serious stuff and not so serious stuff. But I want to start out with um, a serious question that ties back to, I don't know if you remember this, but I actually went to uh, cover a rally of yours in Nashua, New Hampshire. I looked this up on February 8th, 2020. Um, and a voter there asked a question about coronavirus, which is what people were calling it back then, um, and asked, A, what should we do about it? And B, whether you thought it would lead to a rise in violence and discrimination against Asian Americans, what we should do about that? Um, so I want to kind of pose that same question to you, I guess, like 14 months later, starting with the first part, or the second part, rather. Um, do you attribute the recent rise in violence against Asian Americans to COVID and efforts to demagogue COVID? Um, and what, what should New York City, what should the country do about it? I think it's clear that the coronavirus or COVID has led to a surge in uh, racist activities and hostility and even violence towards Asian Americans. I think Donald Trump dubbing it the China virus and Kung flu and the rest of it um, added fuel to the fire. And we've seen terrible instances of violence against Asian Americans here in New York City and in other communities around the country, uh, the, the most tragic of which is the shootings in Atlanta that killed six Asian women and, and two other people. So we have a lot of work uh, to do, Nate, and uh, it, it's a heartbreaking time for really the entire country, but for the Asian American community, there's been this added uh, level of racism uh, that has been fueled by the fact that this pandemic has disrupted so many lives and people unfortunately mistakenly attribute it to anyone with, with uh, you know, um, an Asian background or an Asian face. Uh, it's really awful. Um, and the first part of that question, um, we have a lot more knowledge now, though there's some things I'm still working out, but if you could beam back in time, um, and somehow give an answer in Nashua now, what would you say are the lessons learned, I guess, about how should society respond to, to the next pandemic? Well, we missed a, an opportunity to try to um, slow the spread and contact trace early on. Uh, we found ourselves very, very quickly in uh, social distancing and mask wearing and mitigation tactics that essentially assumed it was already among the general population. And th this 
pandemic has really exposed the lack of cohesion really uh, in the US and the lack of public trust where in other countries you had greater success contact tracing and having people adopt various measures uh, because if they were reached out to by someone in the government, then uh, people responded very positively. Or if there was a public communication, then yeah. uh, adherence with that communication was very, very high. Uh, and so we, we missed a golden opportunity here in the States and we're still paying a price for it. Uh, the hope is that by the time the next pandemic comes, and unfortunately I hate to say this, but there will eventually be another pandemic, um, that will have built up a better infrastructure, particularly around our, our use of data so that we'll be able to contact trace more definitively early on uh, and give people higher degree of, of confidence really in security because missing that window uh, cost us thousands, tens of thousands of lives uh, and I, I'm sure uh, untold economic havoc. Um, how would you rate New York City's response to COVID? I guess we're kind of having to be grading on a curve here because all the US did badly more or less, except to, you know, maybe Hawaii and stuff like that. Um, I mean, how would you rate the mayor's response, uh, the governor's response? I don't know if you want to give out letter grades or what, but how, how did New York do? Well, I'm, I'm a data-driven guy. Uh, and I think by most any objective measure, uh, New York City has suffered more than just about any other community. Um, and I'm, I'm not sure if you could lay all of that blame at the feet of public officials. I mean, there are cer certain features to New York City that would make it uh, 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 just more difficult to, to stem this kind of pandemic. Uh, we're the most densely populated area. Uh, you know, people get around um, uh, on buses and subways that uh, I'm sure early on uh, probably facilitated uh, the spread uh, but objectively, we have suffered more than just about anyone else. Uh, I am optimistic, though, that also we may recover more quickly than anyone else. And walking the streets of New York every day, I have to say the energy is improving very quickly, in part because a lot more people have been vaccinated recently. Like, If you see people in New York just casually um, acting as if COVID is a thing of the past, and then you ask them, they'd be like, oh, I got vaccinated. Uh, you know, and, and so you're, you're having those kinds of exchanges more and more. It's a little weird. I, I people have this image that like New York totally died, and like I think in part because of like people are doing stuff more outdoors, and right, it can actually seem quite vibrant. And I think people haven't maybe spent much time here. But but how do you see like the the future of the city? I mean, are you worried about um, work from home policies yielding empty office space in Midtown? Do you worry about uh, people moving to the burbs and not paying NYC taxes? Um, you know, what's your prognosis and are there tax strategies or other things that could be um, used to try to avoid having a big drop in, in revenue to, to the city? Uh, my prognosis is grim <laughs> in terms of the current state of affairs. <laughs> so I, I'm, so I, I'm a numbers guy. And so if you look at what New York City is facing right now, we are missing 88% of commuters, 96% of tourists. Uh, and those uh, absences have cost us about 600,000 jobs and counting. 70% uh, of subway ridership is not there. Thousands of small businesses have closed or are closing. Uh, so it's tough. I mean, uh, like it, it's a very, very steep hill to climb back up. Uh, and when you talk about tax incentives and policies, one of the things that uh, I've been openly discussing um, 
in the past, people have talked about a commuter tax in New York City, where if you come into the city and you enjoy city services, maybe you should pay a tax. Uh, I'm actually thinking of commuter incentives, <laughs> where we might actually have to try and reward you for commuting in, um, because there's a, a fundamental yeah. challenge that New York City is facing. Uh, a lot of people have learned to work remotely. Um, and the central case that we have to make, which I happen to 100% believe in because it's correct, um, is that you can perform certain tasks over Zoom, but over time, it is almost impossible to build a competitive world-class culture and organization remotely. Uh, and there's a joke going on the internet, which is that no one gets promoted over Zoom. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> that that if, if you're working over Zoom, uh, uh, Kevin Roos of the New York Times said you're one step closer to being automated, which if you think about it does make some sense because you're interacting with people digitally and you know in, in avatar form uh, already. Um, studies have shown conclusively that people are more creative and innovative when they're working together in an office environment. Studies have shown that academic research is higher quality if the researchers are in physical proximity to each other. So this is the central value proposition of New York City. And uh, our ability to bring that back is going to define our recovery. Um, so I'm not above putting incentives into place saying that, hey, look, if you're coming into the city five days a week, maybe we should be giving you a tax break. Maybe we should be giving your employer a tax break. Maybe we yeah. should give you a gift certificate to a New York bar and restaurant because, you know, like uh, you'll have a great time and I'm sure you'll buy an extra couple of drinks and that bar restaurant could probably use your patronage. Um, so these are some of the things that I think the city needs to invest in. It's the same with tourism, Nate, where we're missing 65 million tourists or so who, who drive tens of billions of dollars in economic activity. And traditionally, New York City has not invested much in promoting tourism because it didn't have to. And now we have to, so we should invest. Um, so I, I'm very, very uh, focused on trying to bring these uh, people back because they're vital to New York City's recovery. Are there particular initiatives for like cultural institutions? I mean, there's Broadway, right? Um, there, there are art museums that have struggled in some cases. I mean, are there, what kind of incentives can you give to help revitalize culture in New York City? I'm, I am thrilled to say that Broadway looks like it's going to reopen a bit later this year, uh, thanks to Senate Majority Chuck Schumer, Senate Majority Leader Chuck Schumer and the Save Our Stages Act and the feds. Uh, I, I think the headline number uh, was $15 billion of the entire Save Our Stages Act. And a lot of that's going to New York City. Uh, and so the hope is that if we reopen these cultural attractions, then it will be one of the catalysts to bring tourists back. And I love it. I'm excited. Uh, one of my goals will be to try to make sure that that federal aid reaches um, arts institutions that are not enormous or very visible and prominent like Broadway. Uh, the arts economy is so vital to New York City. It's one of the things that make it appealing to live here, appealing to be headquartered here so you can hire creative people who are drawn here by the arts and the culture. Um, so to me, what's happening in the arts economy is central. I just did an event today with arts economy workers who were talking about, uh, frankly, how terrible this past year has been for them and how, how yeah. they've had to draw down savings just to, to, to survive. Um, so I am optimistic because we're seeing billions and billions of dollars of federal aid come in. Uh, just the question is how this aid gets utilized and uh, whether it reaches the right people and can sustain the arts 
community long enough for the audience to, to reconstitute? Um, I want to pivot slightly awkwardly to be asking you some sports related questions. This is the Sloan Conference. Sure. Um, so one thing, there's been a little ambiguity, a little debate online about, are you currently a fan of the New York Knicks or not? So uh, I would characterize myself as a disenchanted Knicks fan who kind of uh, separated myself from the team when they dumped Jeremy Lin. Um, because if you can imagine being an Asian American, enormous Knicks fan uh, and uh, weekend warrior basketball player myself, and then uh, like basking in the, um, the glory that was Linsanity, uh, and then have that taken away from you because of um, money, which has never been an obstacle in Nick's world. I mean, we've given incredible contracts to, you know, Jerome James, Eddie Curry, <laughs> like, like you name it, we'll pay you. Um, but then when it came to this, uh, this uh, beloved figure that um, really helped light the city like on fire in a positive way, like uh, we couldn't find the money. Uh, and so it was very hard for me to stick with the team after that. And James Dolan is a very difficult owner to root for, banning Oakley, banning fans. Uh, you know, they have this strange communications culture that, that makes it seem like, you know, some kind of quasi <laughs> sort of, you know, uh, like, uh, like governmental institution of fear or something. Um, uh, and so then I was a basketball nomad for a little while and it was very difficult because I grew up such a, an avid Knicks fan, Nate. Uh, like I cannot overstate how huge a Knicks fan I was uh, through the entire Ewing era. And then I, I was there through the Isaiah Thomas era and just like, you know, which was frankly a, a difficult time. Um, but I, I went through the team through thick and thin and then breaking up with the team was very hard. Um, so then eventually I gravitated towards the Brooklyn Nets and they were very well run and well managed and young and scrappy. Then they signed Jeremy Lin and I was icing on the cake. And, 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 uh, um, and so I've become a Nets fan. So what does this say if someone asks, is Andrew Yang a Knicks fan? I think I reflect a lot of Knicks fans who um, have been saddened over the last number of years. Uh, I will say that, uh, that this current Knicks team is pretty easy to root for. Uh, they're a good story. They seem like they're overachieving and competing. And that's what a lot of Knicks fans have wanted for a long time is just a team that uh, was uh, competing hard and seemed like it had a plan. Yeah, I think people don't understand like how, I mean, the Lasanity era was, I think I moved to New York in 2009, was like the funnest experience I've had as a New York sports fan. So right? much fun! I mean, there was like the Rangers so run fun. and like the Mets run, right? And those were cool. But like Linsanity, which is something like everyone was glued to their phones, right? And like, it was like, uh, it's a cliche, but it was kind of, kind of magical. But yeah, yes, um, it, it was like straight out of, uh, you know, like, like a Hollywood script or something. Um, and winning eight, eight games in a row, dramatic last second three-pointers, really turned the season around. Uh, like that, it was, I'm so glad you were here and can relate to this, Nate. Uh, you saw how much fun that was. And I, I didn't expect Jeremy Lin to necessarily, you know, maintain like all-star type numbers forever, but I was confident that we would get to follow his career uh, as a Nick. Uh, and when that did not happen, I, you know, like it, it was just beyond upsetting for me. Uh, in February 2020, you said, if I were mayor, I would try to get James Dolan to sell the Knicks. If elected mayor, do you have a plan to get Dolan to sell the Knicks? Have you changed your, uh, your view on him at all? You know, uh, as mayor, I'm going to fight for whatever is good for New York City. 
Um, and so if, if James Dolan is an owner, that's good for New York City. Fantastic. And if he's not, then I would ask him to consider selling to someone who'd be good for New York City. Uh, I will say that Dolan as an owner uh, has not been afraid to spend. Um, and, and so there are elements of his ownership that, you know, like I, I think are positive. Um, uh, so the jury's out. Let's put it that way. If you do the right thing, Dolan, uh, you know, if it's good for New York, I'll just root for whatever is good for New York City. Do you have a view on um, Madison Square Garden? There have been proposals to um, to move it. Um, there's always a question of like, should public financing go to sports arenas? I mean, what do you what do you think? Would you demolish MSG and rebuild a much nicer Penn Station? Is it not really up to the city to interfere in any, any direction there? What do you what do you what are your MSG views? Well, I, I think MSG is iconic, uh, and part of it is its location. Uh, you know, it's very central. Uh, to New York. I do think that the tax break that MSG has received uh, has no basis in um, policy. <laughs> that that uh, They're getting a property tax exemption of about $40 million a year. Um, meanwhile, they're a multi-billion dollar organization. Uh, they, they certainly don't need that money. Um, uh, and so I've campaigned very transparently about the fact that uh, they should be paying <laughs> property tax like everyone else. Um, especially in their case, because uh, there's just so much value that they're getting from the city. And, and anyone, I think there was a period when someone was actually, where frankly, the organization was saying without that property tax exemption, they would uh, leave New York, uh, which, which I think is just farce. Yeah, that's I mean, <laughs> like, of course, you're not going to like, like, you know, a significant proportion of the value uh, is the location, which is central and iconic. Um. I want to talk about one other thing that's obviously topical about the intersection of politics and sports now, but um, do you agree or disagree with Major League Baseball's decision to remove the All-Star game from Atlanta in light of Georgia's new rather restrictive voting rights legislation? I do. Uh, you know, I think restricting voting rights when you don't like an outcome uh, is anti-democratic, really. I mean, it, and to use a sports analogy, it would be like, oh, you know, you, you lost a game, so then you just try and change the rules of the game. <laughs> you know, like, yeah. I mean, the, the goal should be to go out there and try and make uh, better um, arguments or uh, present better policies that'll win more people over. It's not like, oh, like, it's getting too easy to vote around here. Like, let, let's restrict that. Um, and it's very hard to see any other motivation for some of these changes. So uh, the fact that Major League Baseball decided to take a stand and say, look, like, you know, we don't need to have our all-star game uh, in Atlanta. And it's tough for people in Atlanta, but the people of Georgia, I think, should appreciate the fact that these voting restrictions uh, are not the right thing. You know, that they're, they're really against the spirit of uh, the democracy that makes our country great. Um, in the wake of this, some people have pointed out um, that New York actually has fairly restrictive voting laws. It's gotten a little better, actually voted early at Madison Square Garden <laughs> in November, um, or maybe it was October, I suppose. Um, we also take forever to count our votes in New York. In fact, we just officially revised our presidential totals, I think, yesterday. Um, Did I get more votes, Nate? Nice. What can the city do to make voting easier in New York? Is it purely a matter of state law? Or what can the city do to, to, to try to make voting less restrictive? Well, I, I mean, there, there are things that the city could do uh, sometimes just to provide resources to upgrade voting infrastructure. Um, some of the some of the vote voting um, processes are, are are controlled by the state. Uh, you know, in, in some cases, the party has 
some input. Um, a lot of it's execution, really. And so if we can help uh, execute on elections better, um, I'd be thrilled and I'd be thrilled to do that. I'm going to say two things very specific to New York. Number one is that my race, the mayoral race, which please do check it out if you're in New York City like Nate, um, is ranked choice voting, which I, I think is the future of voting or should be. Um, and so for people who don't know what ranked choice voting is, uh, you get to pick multiple candidates that you like and order them one, two, three. Um, and then if you think about what this would mean, this means that then you don't have to worry about a spoiler. Uh, the, the way it works is that your votes get tabulated and that uh, the bottom vote getting candidate has their votes reapportioned to those voters second choices. Um, and then you continue this process until someone gets more than 50% of the vote, which means that the winning candidate will be someone that at least half people kind of like. Um, and, and that this is vastly superior to a plurality vote where we've seen instances where someone who got 40% of the vote um, be, becomes the winner because you have multiple people running. And so if you have ranked choice voting, then you don't have to worry about the spoiler effect. Uh, it reduces the incentive to negatively campaign. It will reduce the polarization that's tearing our country apart um, because right now, legislators' incentives are just to try and avoid being primaried. And the people who participate in the primary elections are typically the 10 to 20% most extreme uh, voters in that party. Uh, and that's on both sides. So number one, New York City has ranked choice voting and this should take the country by storm. It's just a better way to vote. Uh, when you talk about trying to improve and update democracy, ranked choice voting is the number one path. Um, so that's one thing I wanna say. Um, the other thing that I, I propose, and this is not a city decision, um, but if it were, it'd be tremendous. I think we should lower the voting age to 16 uh, because Right now, our electorate skews really old, and so like uh, politics tend to skew in the same direction. If you're 16 years old, you can drive a car in most places, you pay taxes, you should be able to say where your tax money goes. Um, and this would transform every high school into a hotbed of democratic activity because all of a sudden it's real. Instead of it saying 18 or over, and then you know high school students are like, it's not cool. Uh, like you'd make it cool because all of a sudden juniors and seniors would be like, hey, I get to vote. And studies have shown that the earlier your first vote is, the more likely you are to vote throughout your life. Like there are a lot of positives that would come out of lowering the voting age to 16. Um, the counter argument is that people don't know what's going on at 16. Um, but uh, I talk to 16 year olds all the time. They're very savvy. Um, and it's not like we're giving voters quizzes right now. <laughs> like there are a lot of people walking into yeah. a voting booth. Yeah, I, I also like the 60 year olds who are not that savvy, I would say. But um, but I, I do, I know it's like a little bit through the looking glass. I do want to kind of ask you some questions about campaign tactics and strategy um, for this analytics audience. You can answer them or duck them as you see fit. Um, the one thing I was curious about is how does ranked choice voting figure into your strategy? Um, is that like an explicit consideration for your campaign? It is. Uh, and one of the incentives I love about ranked choice voting is that I can show up someplace and they can frankly be someone who are you know really excited about another candidate. And I can just be like, just put me second. You know, like it, it, it increases your incentives to try and appeal broadly. Uh, you don't think, oh, I should give up on that set of voters because, you know, they're, they're not going to go my direction. It's like, well, maybe I'll be their second choice or their third choice. Um, like you, you just need to try and build a broad coalition. Um, so ha I'm happy to say I, I think about it all the time and it ends up broadening the type of voters we appeal to. It broadens the way we campaign. Uh, so I love it. You know, you, you, you're not narrowly targeting or segmenting. 
in the same way. I also naturally like to campaign positively. Uh, and uh, I think ranked choice voting should reward positive campaigning. Um, so uh, I think that it is the future of democracy and it does influence the way that, that we conduct ourselves. I mean, in what other respects, if any, would you say that you run a data-driven campaign? Do you think that politicians should look at polls a lot, right? I mean, are, are you, you know, how much can you talk about kind of what's proprietary, I guess it's proprietary, you're careful about it, but like that would make you more of a data analytics focused campaign? Well, I, you know, I, I want to, to project forward to government. Um, so, and, and we're at the MIT Sloan uh, conference, which I've been a huge fan of for a long time. Uh, and so, you know, it's one reason I'm excited to be here. Um, but I, I just want to say that right now we have much better data on where to position a left fielder uh, than we do on the efficacy of many multi-million dollar government programs. <laughs> you know I mean? like, like that there are a lot of public in, uh, expenditures um, that are made with very, very limited visibility. And then even after the fact, like you don't even know whether it worked or not. Um, and then you wind up in these political arguments about things that in my mind should be uh, driven by results and data. Uh, uh, and so uh, my campaign uh, is an interesting blend, Nate, because the fact is a lot of the ideas that we've championed uh, came from me. <laughs> you know, like, I, like yeah. I just think they're the right thing. Um, so uh, an example is 11% um, of New Yorkers don't have a bank account, uh, which means they're spending $600 or more a year on check cashing fees and money lender fees. Uh, because, you know, they get exploited. Um, and so I said to the team, I was like, we need to have a plan to try and uh, reduce that. Like we're the world's financial capital. We should be able to get people basic financial services. At this point, it's nearly cost-free to do so. Uh, you know, let, like, let, let's make a plan. Um, there was no poll that said people would dig that <laughs> directly. Uh, I'll, I'll say that most of the people that don't have bank accounts are probably not avid voters, uh, you know, but, yeah. but, but it, it's something that I just knew was the right thing to do. Um, and so, you know, we, we're, we're establishing a people's bank that will help us reduce that percentage. Um, now, the ways that we're data driven, uh, we poll. Uh, and then after we poll, we get a sense as to locations and neighborhoods that uh, are um, clicking with us uh, with particular uh, messages and policies that people are more excited about uh, that, than others. Uh, and so it, it does drive our behavior because that's just smart, you know, like if, if you were trying to become mayor of the greatest city in the world and you could get information about what voters want, then you would jump on it. Um, so I think we're a nice blend of uh, homegrown organic uh, policies and, and uh, a vision, um, but then we, we campaign smart. Are there like neighborhoods that you could give examples of that are especially important in the Democratic primary? Oh, you you ordinarily say you go where the votes are. Yeah. <laughs> um, I mean, that's generally pretty good practice. Um, uh, not to get too into it, but there are certain neighborhoods that we're performing really well in, even within, like, uh, let's say, um, Brooklyn. Like, there are certain neighborhoods that are clicking with us better than others, and so we'll spend more time in those neighborhoods. Um, there, there are uh, some communities. I'll give an example. Um, I'm very, very popular among Latino voters, as an example. Um, and so we're going to spend some time uh, trying to reach those voters. 
Um, now, I'm, I'm happy to say that according to our numbers, I'm pretty broadly liked <laughs> in, in New York. So it's not like, you know, that there are other people that aren't, aren't excited. It's one reason why I'm, I'm currently in the lead. Um, but it's been really refreshing to see um, our support levels among certain communities that might not uh, be instinctive to people. Um, some polls, I think an Emerson poll showed a fairly big gender split, 41% support for you among men, but 20% of women. Are there things um, about your campaign that you think kind of come across as coding toward men more? Do you not trust their data? Are there, you know, how would you, what would you say to women voters? Yeah, we, we've run a number of polls that did not show the same. Um, and so as a result, uh, you know, we're feeling really good. Um, but we need to just keep making our, continue making our case uh, to all voters, uh, certainly women among them. But I'm happy to say that uh, um, that, that gender split was, seemed to like it was something of an, an anomaly. Um, both you and I are active on Twitter. Some people might say, you know, more active than we need to be. Um, but you comment on sports, comment on restaurants. Um, you had a whole guide to like uh, your like 50 favorite uh, restaurants or something recently, right? I mean, how much of this is designed to just start a conversation, keep the conversation focused around you? Because I would say cynically that there is something to be learned from a multi-way primary and Donald Trump, and Donald Trump kind of always made himself the story of the day and it made it hard for any other candidate to gain attention. I mean, is there some deliberate effort to have high engagement to troll people on the media, in the media? Well, if you look at it, Nate, um, there are limited ways to get your message out when you're campaigning uh, in an environment like New York City. Um, and I happen to have a very significant social media following. Um, and so, of course, you're going to use that channel. Um, and so you're going to put things out that um, are uh, both consistent with the campaign themes, but also give people some insight into what I'm doing in any given day or uh, you know, thoughts on sports and food. Like, I think that stuff is relatable uh, and, and human. Um, but I would also say that every other campaign would love to have, you know, like uh, a couple million <laughs> like people on social media that they could, uh, you know, um, send things to. Um, they don't. Uh, we do. So, of, of course, you're going to lean into that if you're us, uh, you know. And then there are the media organizations that cover the race. Um, and we have to do everything we can to make our case to them too. Uh, there are voters on the street, there are democratic organizations and clubs and activists. So they're all different channels. It's just that we happen to have a more robust digital presence than other campaigns. Um, so we're definitely gonna lean into it. Um, I, I would tend to agree with you that that channel does drive press discussion. Um, which uh, is something that also benefits us. So it, it's something we're aware of. Yeah, I think people don't realize how much people in media are obsessed with Twitter. I mean, it's like worse than I think people would would think, right? If you go to like a presidential <laughs> debate, you're not actually in the debate hall. You're there with a thousand other journalists all looking at one of their screens and you're all using Twitter. But um, I want to ask you something that I said on Twitter that's people disagree with about your campaign. I want to see whether you agree or not, right? I said, one of Yang's strengths is that, is that he doesn't overestimate how far to the left Democratic primary voters are. Keep in mind that Cuomo ultimately beat Cynthia Nixon in New York City in 2018. I mean, do you agree with that? Where would you place yourself on kind of a left to center spectrum? Do you reject those categorizations? Some people say that you're kind of the moderate candidate. 
Um, some people say, you know, he's for UBI, he's way to the left. I mean, how would you, how would you pinpoint yourself? Well, I'm just driven to improve people's way of life and, and solve problems. Uh, I don't think that fits me neatly into a particular column in like the political um, ideological spectrum. Uh, but I, I think that people sense that I'm open to ideas that are demonstrated to make people's lives better um, from every part of the political spectrum. Um, and it makes me the kind of person that folks think, okay, like, you know, I can uh, work with this person, you know, because like, I don't start out in a particular camp. Uh, so if, um, you know, folks uh, uh, on the left are excited about a particular policy and, and uh, I think it's going to help people, then I'm, I'm on board. And I, I think people can sense that about me, uh, but I'm, I'm just driven by what's going to work, uh, what the results are going to be. Um, so yeah, like if someone can show me some data, like I'm, I'm into it. Um. One of my other theories you kind of were touching on this earlier is that you benefit from being relatively new to politics in certain ways. I'm sure it's also a challenge in certain ways. Um, but I mean, what's it like to go uh, from someone who nobody really has heard of to someone who has a X percent chance? We can talk about what X percent is to be the next mayor of According New to York. Vegas, I think I'm the two to one favorite against the field. So it's like would a you, 56% chance. Would you bet on yourself? <laughs> Do I think those odds are good? I think you can make some money like putting it, putting it on that. I do. <laughs> uh, <laughs> Not that I'm what? encouraging that sort of thing. MIT <laughs> Sloan, a Ted B. Um, I mean, it is but, the most like, but, I mean, what is it like? I mean, did you get kind of like a break in between the um, presidential campaign? I mean, it's all filled with COVID, right? But do you kind of have like some downtime or not really? Has it all been kind of like one big whirlwind or, or what? Yeah, it was interesting, Nate, because you and I saw each other in New Hampshire uh, uh, down the stretch. And uh, after uh, New Hampshire, I suspended my campaign. Um, and so then I came back here to New York City and uh, I was recognized on the street regularly. And, and that was a shift. <laughs> um, I immediately transitioned into starting an organization to advocate for cash relief because I, I knew that our job was nowhere near done. Um, and, and then COVID hit and then the world uh, turned upside down. Um, and I was campaigning for Joe and Kamala and then uh, I campaigned in Georgia. Thank goodness we won those races. Um, so I, I've been uh, on the run essentially all the time. And during that whole time, Nate, I was like, oh, it's just temporary. It's like, because, you know, we gotta get Trump out. So I'll just like fight, fight, fight until Trump's out. It's like, oh, we gotta win the Senate. Like I'll fight, fight, fight. And then it's like, oh, you know, like New York City needs me. Let's like, like do everything I can there. Um, but everything has been um, relatively moderate compared to running for president. <laughs> running for president yeah. was, a, was, a, was like a real uh, bear. Um, you know, like I was away from my family five, six days a week sometimes. Uh, you know, like you were just always uh, campaigning. And in my case, people, I think people know, like I, I was motivated by what I thought was an incredible opportunity to accelerate the end of poverty. And I was like, well, you can't fight for that, you know, so let, let's, um, and I thought it's like, you know, th there'll be no, there'll be an opportunity for me to rest if, you know, afterwards. So I, I was really campaigning my heart out uh, for months on end. Um, and so everything since then has been relatively relaxed. <laughs> like e even, I mean, running for mayor has been, you know, like, uh, like a different sort of challenge, but like I've, I mean, I've had a blast and uh, you know, I'm getting to know my own city better. It's a lot of fun.
Um, did you have running for mayor in the back of your head when you were running for president? I mean, you gained this I had, huge. I platform, had nothing right? in the back of my heard. head when I was running for president. Aid. I was just like gung ho, let's go, let's go. Um, and I just thought, like, if, if after um, this campaign, I'll be able to figure it out. Um, and then after the campaign ended again, I started this uh, organization, Humanity Forward, advocated for cash relief checks. And some of our efforts actually uh, helped get some of those checks to people, which I'm incredibly proud of. Um, so um, I, I did not think at the time that I was going to run for mayor uh, because I had nothing on my mind except uh, abolishing poverty and getting Trump out. Uh, but now I'm super excited about the mayoral run. And if you're excited too, you can come check us out. Uh, you know, at, at andrewyang.com, um, uh, we've got a great chance to win uh, and do a lot of good in New York City. And I do want to take, one of the reasons I was excited to be here and speak with you, Nate, is that I think there's like a massive overlap between this discipline or this group of people who are, who are you know, sports fans and are interested in trying to uh, optimize in a particular way. Um, and some folks who are looking at the biggest problems in our society and saying, we can do better there too. Uh, you know, like we have data, um, we, we can uh, improve our way of life. Um, right now, I'm going to suggest the data, uh, the data says that cash relief is working pretty well, and maybe we should do more of that. <laughs> but but there, there's like a, there, there's this real, it's like a fascinating intellectual overlap. Um, I would definitely put you in this camp, because you're this like alpha policy wonk, but also an alpha sports fan. Um, uh, so, uh, you know, uh, like, uh, it's one reason I'm excited to be here with you, Nate. Um, we don't have that much time left, so I'm going to, I have a grab bag of questions, and I have four questions left. We may get two of these, let's say, right? But I want you to pick a number from one to four. I'm going to randomize which question I'm going to ask you. Obviously <laughs> three. <laughs> I think this is the one you didn't want. According really, to a recent wait, wait. Quinnipiac poll, According to a recent Quinnipiac poll, 52% of New York City voters approve the performance of Andrew Cuomo, while 39% disapprove. Do you approve or disapprove of Governor Cuomo's overall job performance? Wow. You know, I, I mean, I, I think that uh, there are things that he's done that are, are quite positive, and there, there are things that people could rightfully be very upset about, and I guess I'll, I'll leave it at that. So you'd be a don't know? <laughs> I mean, I just, just like I said, I mean, there, there, there are elements yeah. that, that you can be excited about and elements you can be very, very upset about. Um, okay, another, I need, yeah, we have one, two, and four left. One. Uh, you said in 2019 that standardized tests are a very poor measurement of human worth. Um, this has become a debate now at selective colleges and high schools. Um, if we're reducing the emphasis on standardized tests, what's a better way for selective high schools and universities to evaluate students? And should school, there be selective high schools, for example, at all? Uh, I, I think that tests are a data point, um, but there are other data points that I think should be weighted very, very heavily, like grades, essays, teacher recommendations, interviews, uh, interests. Uh, you know, like our, our schools should not be prizing a single uh, aptitude. Um, I think a lot of these standardized tests tend to be very heavily weighted toward uh, essentially like one form of analytical intelligence. Um, and they, they can be more human, they can be broader. Um, but I, I do think that there's a place for both these tests and for selective institutions. So have, have you modified your views on that? Or I mean, I guess what you're saying in the statement was 
it's not a great way to evaluate human beings, right? Um, now that kind of you've seen more advocacy for eliminating standard tests or colleges going test optional. I mean, has that been like a, a shift or an evolution for you at all? Well, I think the big problem, Nate, is that we have sent this very, very powerful message and it's disastrous that uh, you're worthless as a human being if you don't um, uh, get into certain schools um, and that you're not gonna have a decent life that you're excited about or fulfilled by unless you um, go to certain types of institutions. You know, you should be able to graduate from high school or community college uh, or, or vocational school and have a great life uh, and be just as um, important um, as anyone else. And that if, if someone is really, really excellent at standardized testing isn't a certain school, it doesn't mean they're better than anyone else. It, you know, just means that they did better in a particular test. Um, so if, if we manage to make that distinction, uh, value people intrinsically, uh, humanize the economy, um, frankly, like, you know, uh, value women and underrepresented minorities intrinsically and not saying like, oh, you know, the market likes this, the market likes that. It's like, you know, like that is the big change we have to make, um, uh, that these institutions can do what they do. It's just as long as they're not like the lone bridge to a decent life, which unfortunately they increasingly have become because our economy has become so punitive uh, and inhuman, like the winner take all economy has left people feeling like, oh, if I don't get on the particular bridge up, then I'm going to be left behind. And it's terrible. Um, I'm going to pick the one question I finished with, because it's a very self-interested question. Um, so I play poker. Um, a lot of my friends play poker. I know during the presidential campaign, you were doing some reach out to poker players at some point, right? Um, yeah, Negreanu. New York City is kind of a bad place for poker, right? The nearest place you can go to play live poker is like Parks Casino, um, which is an hour and a half, right, or Atlantic City. I know you previously indicated some interest in having a casino in the five boroughs. Do you still support that? And uh, would that casino have a poker room? You know, I mean, I, I am supportive of exploring uh, the feasibility of a casino in New York because we have to be... Uh, creative about how we're going to generate revenue. And the fact is, there's a massive gaming vacuum in New York City. In a good year, we get 66 million tourists. There's a mammoth opportunity to be able to um, monetize some of those tourists in a way that, that would be very helpful. Um, but you've given me a new idea, Nate, which is that maybe we just need poker rooms. <laughs> so I'm, I'm going so I'm going to look into this for you, my friend. But also just because like, I don't think it should be necessary for uh, someone to have to drive two hours to you know, Connecticut to, to like play a game. Not yeah, in my course, New York City, yeah. <laughs> let's make it happen. Keep it right here. Just go, you know, uh, like, you know, go a number of blocks. I'm gonna try and make that happen. Okay, Poker Rooms in New York City. It's an MIT uh, Sloan, Andrew Yang, Nate Silver exclusive. Um, I know we're like a man or two over time here. So I'm gonna leave it Not at that. Not according to the clock, man. I, I see we okay, still have Okay, let me ask my one last question. Um, what do you predict that, so marijuana was legalized in New York City last week. Um, do you think that'll have any positive or negative impact on the city? What do you think New York City should do in setting up um, dispensaries or, or distribution sites? Um, yeah. I'm very pumped about the legalization of marijuana. Uh, it's criminalization really, uh, you know, like made no sense, uh, particularly at, at a time when so many other states had already made this move. I think right now the biggest uh, challenge is going to be to make sure that 
the folks who benefit from its legalization are the same folks who are being punished for its criminalization. <laughs> so we could have some of those communities benefit um, from the new firms and businesses that are going to be forming. That would be tremendous. It will not happen on its own. Um, so that's something that the city can lead on, um, which is to frankly just channel some of the resources to um, uh, black owned businesses uh, in our communities that can benefit from this boom um, because you know that they should benefit and it's probably not going to happen natively based upon market forces uh, so that's going to be a, a something i'm very excited to make happen um have you looked at other places that have legalized or, i mean if you go to different cities and different states some it's very corporate some it's kind of very mom and pop right i mean are there other examples that new york city should look for wow i should definitely like investigate which city <laughs> we should try and emulate here uh, but I'm, I'm, I certainly want to make sure that there's space for the mom and pop in New York City uh, in the marijuana business. <laughs> cool. And on that note, we will, uh, I think, call it a session. But uh, thank you so much, Andrew. I hope it's informative to people. Um, let's make things work better. That's really my message. <laughs> Let, let's use some math. Let's use some data. Let's make things work better, starting in the greatest city in the world. Come to New York, people. It's going to be grand. We need you. You'll love it. <laughs> All right. Uh, Thanks, Andrew. I'll talk to you soon. Bye, everyone. Bye, Nate. Great seeing you. This recording is the property of 42 Analytics and may not be published, broadcast, rewritten, or redistributed without the express written consent of 42 Analytics. Any opinions expressed by panelists are their own and do not represent the beliefs of the conference, 42 Analytics, or the MIT Sloan School of Management. 42 Analytics Educational, Inc. reserves all rights in the content.